at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, Syracuse's Recruiting Players Den Week. Yeah, well, we were recruiting players. Now we're back to the dead period, which, as, as some of you may or may not know, the NCAA classifies different months as different types of contact periods. It's pretty weird considering schools want to fill rosters, kids want to decide what college they're going to, but you know we're just going to keep doing things for the student athletes. So let's 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 create a bunch of rules around when you can actually talk to people about it. Yeah, I get it in some points, but I don't really get why June, like why late June, is one of these things. Yeah, the the, the time when you would you would ideally be able to to speak to colleges at will, pretty much. Yeah, since. Pretty much every high school in the country is out, if not all right. high schools in the country are out. But it is one of those things, I guess. Um, but before this, uh, Syracuse had its best like couple days of recruiting in a while, especially because I think we we had just been talking about a couple weeks ago how we had we've been kind of slow to start with this class, and now we have uh, seven players already out of nowhere. Not yeah. already; it's not that huge a number, but seven players, uh, which is what four or five more than we had. Uh, last time we spoke even well yeah we had four or five more than last time we spoke we had six in like a 12 day stretch where you know between a lot of official and unofficial visits um, we had the uh, football camp a couple weekends ago that helped um, both generate more interest from guys we were already targeting and then also lead to a couple new offers and some new um, commitments In, in general like there's been a lot of movement I know we saw today to get past the negative stuff uh, two targets of ours did go elsewhere. Uh, Patrick Garwo, uh, I always thought he was a bit of a long shot, but he picked BC, which has a little insult to injury. Uh, four-star running back from uh, Pennsylvania. He's he's an interesting guy only because he's about he's like five eight, but he's like over two hundred pounds. Seems like you know your typical kind of Boston College running back. I don't know necessarily how that would have fit size wise. I mean, he is a faster back. He runs like a four six. Um, 40, so not like lightning quick, but you know somebody who can move the ball um, while also adding some size. Um, just going to be unfortunate lining up against that um, in a couple of years, uh, I assume after A.J. Dillon leaves um, following his junior year. But nonetheless, uh, we move on. There's plenty, of, there's plenty of other running backs we're targeting. There's plenty of other players we're targeting. Talking about the players that we have uh, landed, I think we start with actually a 2018 player who I think was maybe the biggest win of all. Um, Dwayne Johnson, a guy who'd really been on our radar for a while, for 2018. Um, obviously, from a blog standpoint, this is great since he's like a letter away from uh, from being having the same name as The Rock. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But more importantly, looking forward to what he could potentially bring to the cornerback position. Um, any Syracuse fan knows uh, the secondary has struggled for, what, we're looking at five, six years in a row now. Um, and, and so it, it's good to bring a Juco guy who used to be a Virginia Tech um, and could potentially add, you know, another, you know, power five quality uh, talent to that position. I mean, granted, I, I think we like what Scoop Bradshaw and Chris Frederick have been able to do, but can't hurt to bring in another guy. I know uh, Bradshaw and Frederick have both improved quite a bit over the last couple of years, but also have their moments. And, you know, in three cornerback sets, um, not a bad idea to have a guy like this. Yeah, no, this was a, a really nice pickup for the uh, immediate help here. Um, obviously, like you said, he was at Virginia Tech. He uh, went to Arizona Western, which is one of the better uh, JUCOs in the country. And and cornerbacks, like one of those positions where I'm always fine, like adding depth, especially considering how we've struggled there recently. I'm always fine adding more players and and just seeing, you know, and hoping that a couple of them stick. Uh, as you said, like a couple of these guys from last year who got uh, experience have some upside, and we're excited about them. But uh, an older guy like Johnson, who's uh, obviously was a, a highly touted player out of high school, going to Virginia Tech from the D.C. area, and then you know going down to Arizona Western, uh, definitely adds something to the secondary. And 
uh, it's always nice to have a little bit more experience there. So definitely a big addition uh, should help right away. And, and, you know, I expect that he'll have a, a nice role in this team. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? Like, I, it might seem like we're recruiting the last couple of years, like a lot of guys in the secondary. But I made this point, like kind of in the scholarship breakdown post earlier this week. Um, as much as we've added a ton of defensive backs, we've also lost a ton of defensive backs. Um, I know you and I have talked about it. Cordy's one of like a handful of guys who were recruited by Scott Schaefer's staff. Um, a lot of the attrition that's happened under Babers has been on the defensive side and specifically um, in the secondary. So while we are adding a lot of bodies there, we're also just we're doing a lot more replacement than depth building. And I think we're finally at a place now where you, you'll probably see us take a more normal amount of, of corners um, in this class. I know we have two committed right now. You're starting to see the depth chart normalize a little bit. You know, we have, you know, two kids graduating for this year, four in 2019, three in 2020, and five in 2021 right now. Uh, So I I think, again, I I said this in the comments as well, like building depth is part one. Um, Building depth with players who can step right in is a whole nother question. I think we're, we're getting to that now where you're starting to see, like, down the depth chart that there are guys who are, you know, high three-star kids, a couple four-stars in there, guys who can really, if called upon, can step in and make an impact, and we're not just hitting a hard reset, you know, every time there's an injury or every time, you know, we turn the calendar and we have to, you know, replace a couple guys. For sure, and, and uh, you add in, like, things like position changes with Keelan Whitner, and it's just we haven't just sat down and, and, and had that really solid core of guys, probably since that 2010 team uh, when we had uh, – Mike Holmes and Damon Merkerson, which was probably our last, like, great, uh, and, and by, by great, I mean, like, reliable cornerback tandem. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were good, uh, especially considering what we've had since. So it, it, hopefully we'll start to get to uh, more of a normalized place because there has been so much movement in the secondary, and that's tough when, when it's a team that, uh, that stores a lot of points and plays really fast. It's, it's taxing on a secondary, and we haven't had that, like, consistent unit back there to, uh, to really deal with it. So hopefully we'll start to make into that this year and take another step forward. Oh, absolutely. And I think with Cordy coming back, like the hope is that he can provide some over-the-top help. Um, I think the other safety spot's still kind of in question. I do think Bradshaw and uh, Frederick are the answers at corner, but I also think that you saw how much better they were with some real over-the-top help last year in Jordan Martin. Obviously, we love Cordy, but Cordy's not necessarily the same type of player Martin was. Um, If the safeties can't provide that over-the-top help, um, I would think that the competition maybe starts to open up a little bit. Um, obviously, Babers has filled this roster at this point with guys in the secondary that he recruited, guys who are a little bit bigger, much more coverage-oriented and blitz-oriented as, uh, as most of the defensive backs were under Schaefer. Um, we could see some shakeups there if, if, uh, if the secondary looks as poor um, and as porous as it has um, in, in, i say, the last probably five or six games of last year um, and then much of the season before. So I don't want to—I'm never going to pine for— so well, that's not true. I would pine for somebody's job to to be lost if I thought it was actually deserved. I think Brian Ward has had a lot of challenges. I think that the first half of last year showed that that this what he had installed can work. Now let, let's see it hopefully for a full season because I do think that unfortunately, um, if if Syracuse starts off struggling on on that end and it's obviously like you know make those adjustments accordingly um, in your mind in terms of like we're looking at more, I'd say more efficiency metrics uh, and yards per play stuff, not necessarily yards per game, not necessarily points, but, you know, there's efficiency metrics and what we're able to do, you know, like excel to the same level we did in the first half of last season on third down, things like that. If we can look more like that team, you know, Ward's fine. Unfortunately, if we look more like the second half of last year and most of 2016, John Wildhack might not have any choice but to ask Dino to make a move. Yeah, and I, I'm definitely willing to give him uh, give him the year. I thought, like you said, I think the the first half last year definitely showed um, some real improvement, and we were pretty uh, pretty high on the unit overall. Yeah, and then injuries and and everything else made it uh, really tough. So it's hard to it's hard to really know exactly. And and the first year is like a wash because he doesn't have his own players. He's you know putting in a brand new system. We've we talked at at length about the the change from the Schaefer uh, system to Ward system. So, yeah, I'm definitely willing to give him the full year and, and give him the benefit of the doubt. And, and hopefully adding a guy like Johnson will help continue this transition. But um, by year three, this is where you really hope that like the players have things down and, and it becomes uh, more of an asset to the team versus, you know, something that you're trying to cover up for to, uh, all, all the time. 
Absolutely. And I guess while we're still here on the secondary, uh, you know, Syracuse does have a couple big names coming in, at least for, you know, 2019 so far. Uh, Cornelius Nunn is probably the other biggest recruit that we've gotten in this uh, last couple weeks. Um, I mentioned Dwayne Johnson for 2018, but for 2019, um, Nunn, I know you and I talked about it kind of on Twitter a little bit and in Slack, like potentially really big get, uh, six feet, 170 pound safety. He's going to have to put on a little bit of weight, but at the same time, like really good cover guy from Miami, uh, which is a big win there. We beat out Miami as well as Auburn, Tennessee, Kentucky, Pitt, a couple other schools. I think that that's a really, really big win for us. And then Adrian Cole, um, who's currently uh, not rated by the recruiting services, but you know, from Fort Lauderdale, Plantation High, a place we're familiar with, um, he'll probably end up slotting in somewhere around a three-star recruit based on who else has offered him. Um, I really like both of these guys, but I really in particular like uh, none. I do find it interesting that it seems for uh, the defensive backs we've recruited or gotten commitments from so far this year, it seems like it's not their departure from the guys we've recruited previously, but they are on the smaller end compared to the other guys Babers has gone out and gotten. Yeah, none, none was just probably one of the biggest pickups I think we've had under Babers just by a sheer uh, the sheer list of teams that were after him. Obviously, we don't know uh, what programs gave him like committable offers or whatnot, and that whole thing's always so convoluted because you know, it's, it's always very unclear. But I have to assume at least a majority of the teams uh, between like the Miamis and Nebraska's and Auburn's and Tennessee's and, and all these other schools um, were legitimately interested in none uh, having gotten after him, you know, relatively early in the process. So yeah, definitely a huge pickup um, coming out of Miami. Uh, I think both the DBs in this class are from the, the South Florida area, which is cool, but getting a guy like that from a very high profile area at a position of need. Um, I think even Alabama has reportedly offered uh, it's, it's really, it's really big. And, um, I know the star ranking is only a three star and, you know, his, the rankings don't blow you off the, uh, won't, you know, let the page on fire. But, um, overall, just based on the schools that are after him, I think it's a, it's a really good sign that we're able to go and win this type of recruiting battle. I know we've had a couple guys with offer sheets like this before, but this one, especially being at the position it's at is really huge. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, that's the key is like Miami, a lot of the SEC schools, like they're all very clearly like, you know, out ahead of Syracuse in terms of what we can recruit, you know, in the secondary. So for, for them to be after a similar guy, I mean, yes, you're right about whether offers are committable or not, but in any case, having a high-profile guy, having a guy who's, you know, a high three-star rating and, and someone who's who is able to garner this sort of attention is a great thing. Um, we've said it for a while now, like Nick Monroe is arguably the most important assistant on this staff um, based on the inroads that he's been able to create. Um, the South Florida area. Obviously, Baber's staff, you know, has, has really leaned on that. Schaefer's staff did as well. Marone's did to an extent too. But I just think the the caliber of player Monroe has been able to go get down there um, really seems to speak volumes. And I hope, you know, knock on wood, and I hope other other programs aren't listening to this. Uh, really hope we can hang on to him for as long as possible because I do think, you know, Monroe deserves deserves more praise for, for the work he's done. Um, and, you know, is really going to be key to, to Syracuse continuing to bring in top talent. Yeah, and that's also part of the reason why it's pretty huge that the secondary uh, up to snuff because obviously that's his position group, and the recruiting it makes it almost impossible to, like, say, you know, he's expendable in any means. But you also want, you know, the actual players to, to start to come along as well. Um, but back, back with, uh, with none in particular, like I was saying to someone after he committed, like, whether or not some of these offers were committable or not, like I'll take Alabama's plan B like all day. That's right. fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause usually Alabama's plan B is better than our plan A. I would say like a solidly 75% of the time. That's correct. Right. If not more, you know, and another uh, couple players that I guess uh, one of the big players I thought was, you know, while the numbers might not jump out at you on paper, I thought another guy, uh, Joe Rondi from, uh, New Jersey. I thought there's a lot to like about him. Uh, high upside guy. Uh, he's a three-star now, but did gain about 60 pounds in the last year um, and is really rounded into a, a big defensive tackle. He's probably going to be someone who, you know, you see one of those late jumps in the recruiting rankings uh, just in terms of overall, even if not with stars, you're going to see some bigger offers probably come in on him. Um, you and I have discussed it, uh, a bit over the last couple of years how difficult it is for, you know, defensive tackle um, 
recruiting in general, but especially for Syracuse, it seems, since we don't have that natural base of players that really fit the size requirements for a Power 5 guy. Um, so great to get in on him early. Obviously, you know, with that kind of jump in, in, in weight and size for him, uh, other bigger programs are going to come calling at some point. So it, it's good for us to get in early there. And I think he could be an underrated kind of gem in this class um, as it starts to come together. And hopefully we're able to to pull together a couple more uh, guys in the interior part of the line because it really has been a place that Syracuse has struggled of late and especially overall defensive line we, we've struggled to get guys in the door but I think um, interior wise uh, it really has been quite the task so I think good to get one name early and, and hopefully we can get a couple more yep and it's always nice to get some guys out of Jersey he uh he's from Wayne he had a Rutgers offer and defensive tackle I, we've brought it up before is like one of the hardest positions to to recruit so obviously he has to grow into it a little bit based on where he is now but I think everything uh, looks pretty good there. And uh, apparently, I obviously haven't seen him in person, but uh, by all accounts, he has the frame to, to really uh, to, to bulk up a bit and, and should be able to put on some, some good weight. Uh, he's, you know, he sits four, so he's actually pretty tall for a defensive tackle. So um, that should be a good sign. But getting a, getting a Jersey guy over Rutgers is always nice as well. I would agree. Uh, I know in general, like, this does seem like it's going to be a smaller class. I, I know I think it's going to come in around 17, 18. Um, Stephen Bailey was alluding to it being a little bit larger than that. He's a little—he's definitely better than I am at tracking like the the specific dates that people leave. And I know he's mentioned that Justin Ellis might count against the scholarship count this year. I'd be surprised if that was the case because I thought Ellis left soon enough that it wouldn't matter. But I could be wrong there. Yeah, I'm not sure what the situation is there, but um, overall, like you can usually account, you should, you can usually bet on like two or three scholarships opening up um, between like the end of the season and the spring. So I don't know what the exact like the exact number is in terms of what we can take on now, but there's there's a fair you know there's a fair bet that you'll you'll have a couple transfers out and you'll have a couple guys who uh, you know maybe have someone leave early, and it almost always works out where you can add like another two or three uh, players above what the the scholarship count at this point in the cycle is totally yeah I, right like right now i've got 81 for the current roster that's not accounting for any other random chicanery that's going on but i've got 81 for the current roster with four spots available um i'm gonna assume at least one of those ends up going to one of the uh senior walk-ons that's on the team but we'll see there uh I, I, I don't see us adding, I mean, but again, I didn't see last year either, so who knows. Um, I don't see us adding a guy as late as we added Alton Robinson last year. I think that was, uh, that was its own case, if only because there was the random legal question for him that was uh, completely resolved, um, but it was something that Syracuse really did their due diligence on to make sure that they were adding the, the type of player that they wanted to. But in general, like I, I think this is probably the roster we see. I don't see, again, I don't see us adding you know, somebody out of the blue who really, um, you know, makes, I think, as big of an impact, at least as Robinson did at defensive end, uh, led the team in sacks. Probably going to do so again this year, I think, with a year. Uh, we don't have to go too much in le- at length on him, but I do think Robinson is the type of guy who could, you know, approach the eight or nine sack mark this year uh, just by way of actually knowing the, the system um, going into the season versus last year, kind of learning on the fly since he showed up in August. Yeah, he showed up late, and, and I have to look up the, the game logs, but I feel like his, I mean, he took a, a pretty big step forward midseason, which you'd expect considering, you know, the type of uh, experience he was getting on hand, but hopefully having more depth in the interior will, will free him up as well uh, to, to make more plays, because last year we we were pretty under uh, underhanded along the defensive front, and he still had a really nice year for his first season at FBS, so that would be nice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you think, like, for him, really, kind of, I think being the target of uh, of double teams pretty quickly, especially once you saw injuries to guys like Josh Black and Kendall Coleman. Like, obviously, Chris Layton's going to demand a lot of attention in the middle, and him and McKinley Williams are really going to lock down that middle area and hopefully shut down the run and siphon guys outside. Uh, where we've struggled is being able to stop those guys once they are kind of siphoned outside. Um, I think with Kendall Coleman healthy, obviously with Alden Robinson healthy this year, like he was last year, like those two guys, Kingsley Jonathan, uh, that should give us a, 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 what 
is hopefully a better pass rush um, and a much better shot at, at stopping the run this year than I think we had for most of last year when uh, second half of the year, obviously, we completely just kind of fell off the map and it didn't really matter. Teams could do whatever the hell they wanted. In part, that's because we faced A.J. Dillon and Lamar Jackson. But, you know, the, the same can't be said about John Wolford, uh, Wake Forest quarterback, who just ran roughshod over us for an entire afternoon at the Dome. Oh, God, that team. That, that, that was one of the worst games I've ever, like, had to witness. Yeah, I, I just looked it up. He was very quiet through four games. He had six total tackles. And then uh, at NC State, he had six tackles total. And then he had his Blew first sack. in the pit game. Yeah, he had five tackles, a sack, and a fourth fumble in his pit. And then he had five tackles and a sack against Clemson. And then he had two sacks in Florida State. And then he had a sack against Wake Forest. So from basically from like late September on, he was very, very good. Uh, finished with five sacks um, in uh, that one five-game stretch. So... Uh, yeah, more of that. I mean, if that's how you're getting all year, like that's a very, very good, you know, probably borderline like all ACC thirteen player. Yeah, let's hope for let's, let's hope for that from him this year. I'm uh, again, I, I'm very optimistic about what we can get from him. Uh, I'm very optimistic about even like you know guys like Kingsley Jonathan who only played sparingly. Um, there's going to be a lot of younger names that in general like people have don't aren't necessarily that familiar with, but guys who are going to be able to jump in. Maybe we see some more Kenneth Ruff this year. Uh, Brandon Berry played kind of sparingly after getting injured last year. So, you know, a, a lot of guys on the line that, that could see could see time that we haven't before, but that could also open up some, you know, snaps for, for some of these younger guys. And obviously, you know, Babers is, is going to want to see, especially with the new um, redshirt rule in place now, is going to maybe want to see some of these guys in action, um, even if it's just you know, either in the early games or depending on where we are later in the season, some of the later games too. So I think that's going to be a fun aspect for me, at least, is seeing a lot of these, you know, defenders we're excited about. I'd say more on the defense, to be honest, than the offense. Um, see a lot of these guys that we that we wanted to see kind of jump in an action um, and be able to maybe not make an impact in a way that, you know, shifts the, the course of the season or the game, but, you know, just just see what they can do in, in, in some game minutes and, and give us a glimpse of, you know, the future and maybe one we're a little bit more prepared for now because we're able to give those guys some time. Sounds good to me. All right. Before we get to halftime, maybe a little bit here on the non-conference basketball schedule. Um, as I mentioned recently, I, uh, football schedule seems like it's assuming army counts in those, those non-conference games in the 2020s to a P5. I feel like we're okay. If it doesn't, we're kind of screwed. But anyway, Georgetown date was uh, was confirmed on Tuesday. That uh, that was December eighth. Now we knew the game was happening. It was just a question of when. That leaves four more games on the site. I posited that Colgate's probably one of them. Eastern Michigan's probably one of them, and then the others are kind of up for debate. Maybe St. Bonaventure's in there. Um, I thought maybe Ryder could be an interesting one. Uh, teams like UPenn, Wagner, Hofstra, Canisius, Albany, kind of hanging around like that top 100, 150 range. Um, Dan, are there any opponents that like, you really want to see this year, um, either from our past or, or, or potentially teams that we've never really faced that could help us RPI-wise or just in general just grabbing a win here and there? I think Buffalo would be a nice addition again. Um, they've been a, a really strong RPI team and also one that you should beat most years. Buffalo um, is on there. Are they definitely on the, on, the, on the schedule? December 18th. Buffalo's coming oh, back to the okay. Dome. Cool. Missed that. Okay. Um, I don't know if I have any, any specific teams in mind, you know, because obviously, you know, we could all say we'd like to see Syracuse play uh, Kentucky and Indiana or whoever every year. Nope. Um, but in terms <laughs> of, like, these, like, smaller schools, I don't know. I think anything, anything that's going to bolster the RPI like that Buffalo game did last year is, is a plus. And hopefully – we're not in the position where we're like banking on these on those types of games, but it can't hurt. And and again, like when you're bringing them up to the dome, if all goes well, like it should be a win no matter what. Uh, but you know, in in case uh, of another situation where we are um, on the bubble, which again we don't we don't expect to be, but it's happened enough recently where you have to at least like take it into uh, consideration. There's just not that much to be gained from playing those like 300 plus teams, aside from like the couple in New York State that we always play, like Colgate. Um, hopefully they're not as high uh, in the RPI this year. But, um, 
yeah, so anything in that range, I'm always for. I think I think it can only help. And again, like you, you, you should be in the win anyway. So I don't think it's a huge deal if you get a 15 point win over one of those teams versus like a you know 40 point win over uh, some really awful team. No, completely. And like you know, where you can add history or like reduce cost for us, like having to pay out. Like that's why I mentioned Ryder because like they're not that far down in New Jersey. They were actually a top hundred RPI team last year. They made the NIT. They lost to Oregon. They were pretty young last year, so it could be an interesting name to add. Um, never hurts to play some uh, NAAC teams. Iona and Bradley. We ha- I don't know the last time we faced Bradley, but obviously we faced Iona last year. Um, could add teams like Toledo and Kent State that actually, like, Toledo in particular, like, Buffalo was the main team that helped us, but Toledo did help us out quite a bit um, yeah. just because they were another top 100 team um, out of the MAC. You know, I mentioned some of those other squads before, like, you know, the New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania area. Again, squads that were kind of top 100 or so. For me, like, the Bonnies are going to take a step back this coming year just because they lost a bunch of talent to, you know, the NBA Summer League. Wouldn't mind facing them again just for for historical standpoint. But, yeah, I mean, we haven't faced Hofstra in a while, haven't faced Canisius in a few years. Albany's been a bit, too. Like, any of those are fine, I think. It's not just scheduling cupcakes for cupcakes' sake, you know. Rather schedule one of those teams that that was kind of again top hundred, top hundred and fifty versus you know one like Niagara or or any of the other kind of you know scabs at the bottom of the uh, of the RPI. Yeah, we've done a really good job of this recently, uh, where we've identified these types of teams um, pretty well and, and adding them and, and it not being you know to, to, uh, you know real drag. Other one I'm looking. Uh, I'm looking through the last year's end of season RPI. St. Francis from Pennsylvania, who I think we've played semi recently, was at 182. Fairfield was one, at 183. So these are, you know, a couple other like relatively local options um, that wouldn't be like the worst. I think if you can get in the top like 100 to 200 and have like the vast majority of your non-conference games be there, I think you're in pretty good shape. Agreed. Shout out to uh, Kit Wellman. The uh... Director of Basketball Operations, who's done a bang-up job on this the last, like, five years or so. I know, uh, I think it was, like, a year and a half ago at this point that he uh, he gave Syracuse.com a glimpse into the uh, into the inner machinations of, of how these schedules come together. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and, and he is direct. Obviously, you have to win the games, but uh, he, he is one of the main reasons why we made the NCAA tournament last year because of the strength of schedule that he was able to pull together. Yeah, and I feel like we didn't have this level of precision with it, um, even, like, eight to ten years ago i think we had a lot more of these like really horrible games and we win we you know we'd win them and we'd win 25 26 games so it wouldn't be a huge deal but you never really know when you're gonna have some you know crazy drop off or when your team's just not going to play up to the level that you expect so there's really no reason to uh to backload your schedule with uh, a bunch of 300 pluses if you can avoid it and it seems like we've kind of found most years recently we, we've had like this really nice group of of buy games where you're almost definitely going to take home a win but still help yourself at the same time i, I think even like a couple years ago we even with some of the weirder games that aren't local teams um i think we had like a i'm trying to remember exactly what game it was oh there was one season where we had like two or three of those types of games where they, they were not obvious opponents at all and still they, they ended up helping us out um was there a uab game recently uh that i don't know but i do, I do know the types of teams you're talking about i yeah. think it helps especially with the tier system that that the ncaa transitioned to like we actually kind of like jumped the gun on on the transition if anything yeah it makes it i mean it makes it easier to like know exactly what you're i mean obviously teams can, can underachieve but you kind of have a good idea of what you need right like the, you, you pretty much know the teams that are going to finish in that 300 to 350 range Yes. Um, so, so just avoid them, unless they're yeah. Colgate or Cornell, and then sure, schedule them, whatever. Yeah, Colgate and Cornell, like they're so local, and you have long-term, you know, series with them, and obviously, you have uh, Jimmy Junior playing for Cornell, so you're not going to like not schedule them, but right. um, that's fine. Like you can have one or two of them, yeah. you just don't want it to be four or five, which I feel like, you know, going back to like oh eight oh nine twenty ten, you'd have more of those. Well, I think going back to the, that time, what we'd do is we'd schedule a couple tough teams and a couple scabs, and then it would unfortunately would average out to something in the mid hundreds. Like I think now we understand better. You're you're better off having one, maybe two top teams, having a bunch of teams in that fifty to one hundred range, um, and then kind of balancing out the rest with 
you know, your Colgate and Cornell, wherever the hell they land, and then everybody else kind of in that 100 to 200 range, and that's really where the sweet spot is, and that's how you game the RPI and the strength of schedule numbers. Yep, and until the NCAA decides that the RPI isn't a great way to do this, which it's not, and it never really has been, um, I'm all for it. Agreed, agreed. Um, all right, why don't we uh, let's talk a little beer. What have you been, uh, what have you been drinking, Dan? Uh, I had a couple new things last week. I was in Jersey. Um, a lot of stuff that we've touched on a lot, so I'm not going to bring it up. But um, the two main new ones I had uh, on Sunday night, um, I'm going to struggle to pronounce this, uh, but it's a carton brewing company down in Jersey. Uh, they're Ap- uh, Apio Geraleta, Geretla. It, it's all caps. It's A-P-I-O-G-E-R-E-T-L-A. Uh, it's a black IPA. Um, really nice balance of flavors. I, I don't know. I feel like for a while I was like, oh, I'm not really that into dark beers. But then the last, like, however many times I've had a, a really good dark beer, I've really enjoyed it. So maybe I am into dark beers now. Um, but uh, a really nice blend of, like, hoppiness plus uh, plus maltiness and and, and uh, full flavor, but no, doesn't not like a lot of that. Uh, I just, one thing I really don't don't always like about dark beers are like is like the really strong aftertaste. Right. And this doesn't have that, um, and definitely has a nice hot profile, which uh, sneaks up on you. So that was good. And then uh, I had uh, Two Roads uh, Brewing's uh, Tanker Truck Sour series. Their Persian Lime Goza. Um, they have a bunch of these uh, Tanker Truck Sours. But this Persian lime one was, was really, really delicious, super refreshing, really good for the summer. So I was cool, happy to find a can of that. Nice. On my end, uh, headed to one of my favorite spots near here that I've mentioned, uh, Select Beer Store down in uh, South Redondo Beach. Uh, had from Modern Times, their Neon Tiger uh, Goza. Uh, I wanted to try that at the LA Beer Week kickoff last week. It was not, the, I didn't have time for it, but ends up it was on draft here. So we got to try that. Uh, Alesmith has their uh, Speedway Stout series. I had the uh, Vietnamese coffee version that was pretty good. Um, kind of dry finish, but like I- I'm a, usually a big fan of that. Uh, had a couple IPAs from Mumford Brewing around here, uh, AM Radio Days, and uh, Butterfly Scratch. Um, had Beechwood Brewing, the system of a stout that's always a really good Imperial stout. Um, doubled back on Past Future from Highland Park. I had it at the uh, LA Beer Week thing and then got to check it out again. Uh, really good New England style uh, IPA from uh, Cigar City. Had a Florida Cracker White Ale. Uh, that's really good. And then over the weekend on Sunday, also had Drip with Sunset from Monkish. Uh, it was a uh, wild ale made with uh, Masamoto uh, peaches. Uh, Masamoto Farms is a uh, farm out here in California. They sell their peaches to a select few breweries every year to kind of let them uh, use them for sour ales. Uh, Monkish is on that short list. So really, really good beer. Uh, one of my favorite sours that I've had uh, so far this year. So, and probably, to be honest, one of my favorite beers I've had all year. Just a really, really uh, excellent sour. So uh, I would say I highly recommend it, but you can't really buy it at this point. Um, but yeah, if, uh, if anyone knows people that trade or knows people that um, have Monkish beers just kind of hanging around, uh, request this one. Yeah, it sounds delicious. It was indeed. Uh, all right. Today, on the second half of the podcast, we are talking about the American Athletic Conference, a.k.a. Tulane's home. Yeah, I feel like we've been adoring our uh, our our favorite sons down in Tulane for a while, and, and today it's their time to shine. It is. Although we, we talk about them on Twitter a bunch. We do. We, we've, we've moved uh, a lot of it to Twitter, but, you know, they do get the, the occasional... Um, the occasional mention here as well, and I'm sure during the season we'll we'll be sure to mention them more and take over the a couple episodes with them. This is true. Um, we won't start with Tulane though, just because I, I feel like I want to save the best for last. UCF is going to be an interesting team. Now I know a lot of other, you know, publications have talked about them. They are an interesting case this year in that they could. I think their schedule might be worse than it was last year. Um, although they do have FAU. I think the UCF-FAU game might actually decide, it, depending on what Boise does, might actually decide the uh, the access bowl spot for the uh, group of five. They do have a game at Connecticut. That won't really do anything to start the season. Um, they're at North Carolina. I think Carolina's overrated. Pitt's overrated as well. So it's really going to ride on FAU, and then depending on how good teams like SMU um, and Navy and South Florida are, but this might be a worse schedule than last year, and that that's with or without the Georgia Tech game that ended up getting canceled. 
Yeah, this is a pretty manageable one. Obviously, I think FAU is their highest. Uh, I think Bill C has, has as their best um, their best opponent in terms of his uh, S and P plus, which is very interesting considering they do play a bunch of other like you know the rest of the pretty strong AAC teams plus two ACC opponents. Um, but we talked about FAU at length a couple of weeks ago. We were very high on them, and like you said, this could go pretty far in determining who that New Year's spot goes to. I'm not ready to pencil in UCF for the top of the AAC. I, I just think losing Scott Frost is huge. Right. And um, they have a lot of talent, and he, you know, is, is uh, a lot to say about that. Um, and they've brought in a number of guys who are, like, transfers from, from pretty big Power 5 programs. So they have, like, legitimate blue-chip talent uh, across the roster here and uh, a really good quarterback, um, a really nice uh, group of, Still position players surrounding him. Um, I think they return most of their defense, although they lose at least a couple big names in Shaquem Griffin and uh, who's the cornerback? Uh, Holmes? Oh, yeah. Uh, who was a first-round talent. Um, I, forget, I think he probably fell because he had some off-field stuff, but uh, I think he might have gone late first, didn't he? Yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, I, I think he went I think he went high-ish. I mean, in general, yeah, I'd say the defense, like the offense gets the headlines for UCF, but the defense really what like its ability to quickly turn around was what really what kept them in a bunch of games that maybe they had no business being in um, kept them really competitive obviously kept them competitive enough against Auburn to pull off that win uh, Mackenzie Milton being around is really what's gonna you know kind of make or break this team I think he's good enough to carry them um, despite losing you know about half the uh, offensive lines but there's enough back on defense I do really like Josh Heupel I think that was a inspired great hire i know we talked about it a little bit um in some of our other conversations around coaching and group five but i do like hypo i think that randy shannon as defense coordinator is a really inspired hire as well to me the coaching to be honest as much as i like scott frost i think the 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 ability to bring in uh guys like that to replace him is uh is kind of what's going to keep ucf afloat so I could buy into them going undefeated again, even if they're not as good as they were last year. Yeah, I, I looked up. It was Mike Hughes, not Mike Holmes. Mike Holmes is obviously a Syracuse cornerback who we talked about earlier in, that, in the episode. So <laughs> that wasn't the best the best mistake. But he did, he went 30th, so he was a, a legitimate first-rounder. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty high on the hypo uh, higher as well. I, I feel like UCF fans dip themselves in a bit of a trap where, you know, if they only win 10 games this year, like, that's not a failure. That's, you know, you're not going to always go undefeated. Right. Um, I think where Hypo could succeed in giving them a little bit more stability in is that he wasn't really um, shortlisted as like one of the the guys uh, up and coming through the ranks. Like Frost was at Oregon, obviously, and he was you know he was the OC for a national championship runner up, and he was basically targeted for that Nebraska job years before he I mean before he was even at UCF. He famously spurned us for UCF, so like he had some really big options. Um, Hypo was definitely a little more undersold. I mean, not undersold. He was just wasn't in the same position um, being at Mizzou. Obviously, he was at the helm of a really, really explosive offense there. But it wasn't like, you know, the offensive coordinator at Mizzou was getting these giant looks. Um, when he has tanked before, like when he, when he was in a similar role in Oklahoma, like it didn't go as well as it went with Mizzou. And you have to wonder how much of Hypo's ability was, was based on having you know, SEC talent and uh, Drew Locke. Like, th- that's obviously going to play in a little bit here because he was only there, what, two years? Uh, I think Heupel, um like, overall, I think wh- where he might not have the same, like, top end that Frost did because Frost was, was so well-groomed to become that head coach, UCF might end up, like, hanging on to him a little longer, and you might that might not mean, you know, the immediate crazy success that they had with Frost, but there's a chance maybe he'll be there for like four or five years before he gets looked at. Um, unless like UCF just becomes that position where athletic directors are looking at them so quickly for their coaches, if that becomes like a situation. But overall, like he's, he, uh, it did also help them that he, you know, didn't exactly let the world on fire Oklahoma from 11 to 14. Um, and then obviously Lincoln Riley stepped in a couple of years later and, and we know what happened there, but um, there's just a bit more uh, tread on those tires and he just wasn't the name. So, uh, hopefully for UCF, you know, they can actually get a couple more years out of him because obviously you want to keep on hiring the best possible coach, and if it, if they get poached, so be it. But I think it's really hard to, like, continue to hit those p- hires out of the park. And 
Uh, it might not be the worst thing if if there's a little bit more like of a natural uh, progression with your head coaches um, versus Frost, who just like went so he just fired off so quickly from that 0 and 12 season to the to the 13 and 0 season in just two years. Right, and to be honest, like if Heupel stuck around for for three, four, five years, like you know that that is more of a normal coaching progression. And and, and in the American Athletic Conference, to be honest, if you're if you're with him for three, four, five years, and you win three conference titles, and maybe make another one or two like access bowl bids, like if if they pull that off, they they are contending with Boise to be the class of the entire. Um, group of five and, and that's obviously a huge accomplishment especially like you said coming just a couple of years after an 0-12 season um, some mitigating circumstances there but not to make this all about UCF but at the same time like UCF is really you know poised here to to take a major leap and, and again become kind of the 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 standard bearer um, and Heupel is going to be a big part of that like for for a team at the top of the Mountain West for a team every year and for a team at the top of um, the American Athletic Conference every year, like at some point and, and some point very soon, you know, your your coach is, is going to be poached um, away from some. And so, again, if they can hold on to him for an extended period of time, I'd say that that's a, that's a big victory for them. And, you know, hopefully they don't fall into kind of the same trap that Houston has with, I'd argue, about the same amount, maybe even a little bit less success um, where, where Houston kind of fell into the trap of, you know, thinking that, okay, like, a couple years with, with Herman, knowing that he could be headed for, for greener pastures, like now suddenly we're, you know, the best team in the American Athletic Conference every year. We're one of the best group of fives. I mean, and yes, th- those things are true. Like they are one of the best programs in, in the conference. They are one of the best programs in group of five. They obviously have access to talent and, and all that. But it's to say that, like, don't think that, that, a, that a slight step back to, to a seven and five season means that, you know, all is lost after after Herman brought you to heights that that you probably you know could have climbed to under a different coach, but instead he kind of brought you right there and then and then hit everybody in the mouth. Like I think you know this is kind of a, an awkward way to pivot to Houston, but you know Houston might be in for another t- season that wins eight or nine games, and, and and hopefully that Cougars fans don't find that to be a failure when it, it certainly is not. Yeah, there's that really interesting comparison we made uh, between UCF this year entering year one under Heupel and Houston what they had to deal with last year after Herman left um, they hired Major Applewhite who uh, was at Syracuse for a hot second but uh, was also at Texas for a while he's just like a, a pretty well-known name in terms of the like former pretty prominent assistant coaches um, in college football he was at Texas from 08 to 2013 before then joining Herman's staff so he was an internal hire versus Heupel who was from the outside um, but overall, like they did step back to seven and five last year, uh, which was a step, obviously a step down from what Herman was doing there. But it, it's like what we say about what you hope for Heifel if you're a UCF fan. Like if he can kind of add some long-term uh, stability there, like ideally if you're a G5, like you want to have what Boise has, where even if you're not competing for that access bowl bid, you are uh, in the conversation every year. And and both UCF and I mean Houston didn't even have like the heights of. Uh, of UCF back in like the Blake Bortles years, they are kind of more of a, a recent um, power, although they've had nice years before. But you want to have that thing where you can you can withstand a coaching transition, and that coaching transition isn't happening like all the time, because otherwise it's impossible. Boise State's withstood two of them, and it helps that they've had a little bit more longevity. But also, like they can also hold off of uh, you know teams just coming in and poaching their guys constantly, and now they're pretty well established. And I think. UCF, we have a bit of a history in terms of, like, we've, we've now have multiple um, very distinct uh, tenures of coaches doing really well there. Houston is, is interesting. They moved on to Tony Levine, who had some success there. I don't know that we quite know that they can just keep on where they've been, uh, being where they've been, although it helps that their recruiting has been pretty fantastic, and they've been uh, a really uh, hot program for a lot of the, the big transfers that we've seen out of the Power 5 down to the G5. Well, the money's getting tossed in there, too. They obviously have all that talent in their backyard. You know, if, if Applewhite does well enough to head elsewhere, or even if he doesn't, I think there's enough money and interest there where, like, they can get one of the hotter names in the Southwest area. Like, have, having the, the, the spread be so, like, intrinsic at this point to, like, the identity of Texas football, like, definitely helps them out. I, I don't think that, like, the H-Town takeover stuff and all the flashy you know, kind of attention that, that Herman brought. I don't think that goes away even with his departure. I mean, his, his, his abilities as a coach goes away. 
but I, I think that there's still enough. I mean, you know, Apple White's a former QB um, in that type of system a little bit like, uh, you know, Graham Harrell. There's so many other names down coaching at Texas schools, being assistants. Like, I feel like they're going to be all right. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, like we'll see what happens with, with eventual potential, maybe not you know, Big 12 expansion, but even if Houston's hanging around the American Athletic Conference for the next 20 years, I don't really see them having a problem getting these types of guys if they're willing to go out and just keep mining the, the, the same general um, idea of, you know, guys like Applewhite or maybe a Graham Harrell or, or others who have, you know, played at Texas or Texas Tech or, or even Houston. Um, there's definitely some opportunities there for them to stay relevant it's just a question of you know what's going to be okay it, it, is a seven to eight win you know floor with with every three years you jump up to 10 or 11 is that okay i think it should be for just about any team in the country save maybe a handful you know at the very very top yeah i think it kind of has to be i just don't know that you can realistically do much better than that um right. if you're a, if you're a g5 and i know houston has like kind of said they want it to not be enough I don't know. I, I just don't think you can you can say that you're going to be that team every year. Um, there like there are so few teams. That Nobody can. Other than like Alabama is like the only one that can really. Yeah, I mean you you can do it if you things from your if your program is going to stay at the same level as it is. But like when you're in Houston and the, if if you start to get that kind of success, other bigger programs will come looking for your coaches. Like it's just not sustainable. Like you're going to have some more ups and downs and lumps. So I think you have to like. I think saying eight wins is a base mar- uh, a baseline, and doing a year is a baseline, and being you know competitive, recruiting with you know some of the bottom level P fives, and defending you know some of the decent players out of your home turf. I think those are all fine. I think saying you have to win ten wins, uh, have to win ten games every year, and have to be like a top twenty five to thirty program in the country, like that's just not all that sustainable. Unless you are just on a crazy ride of of hiring great coaches and. Uh, not losing players to transfer when those coaching changes happen, and, and there's just so much that can go wrong there that it's 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 tough to to say that and then you know really live up to it when someone has like a six and six season once. Right. I guess you know that's a good way to pivot to a couple programs that have more realistic expectations, and I think I think there's a defined top four in this league this year. Um, maybe kind of you know co preview here of Memphis and South Florida. Uh, programs that have had a little more coaching stability, um, if only because, you know, Mike Norvell stuck around despite the hype. Um, and he's a guy who, you know, took over for Justin Fuente and, and has done a really good job there. Um, Charlie Strong, you know, he's in year two. Uh, and, you know, people thought that maybe they could go undefeated last year. Uh, they ended up finishing 10-2. and two. Still a pretty respectable mark. Uh, they, they tested UCF in one of the more fun games of last year. Um, you know, in that, that Thanksgiving weekend game, it was a 49-42 shootout. That was a lot of fun. Their, uh, their other loss was to Houston in one of Houston's better games last year. But I think, yeah, South Florida seems to have a much more realistic, despite, you know, their rival UCF um, going undefeated. Uh, read on things, I think Memphis not necessarily having a natural rival um, for one. But for two, like, they lost to UCF in double overtime. They were potentially you know, your, your access bowl representative, depending on how the rest of the cards fall, uh, team, they ended up losing Iowa state as well in, in the Liberty bowl, but they were 10 and one, you know, heading into December last year. So, uh, so that's, that's another program that I, I think is pretty realistic, despite the fact that they've been super, super successful, um, in these recent seasons. So I think for me, you know, Memphis and UCF or USF, excuse me, are, are both potentially, you know, access bowl representatives, but maybe without the hype that the UCF or Houston is getting at this point. Yeah, I, I don't think I, either of them winning the AAC would shock me. I think Memphis um, is kind of rolling along. Like, they're kind of what you what we were saying about, like, what Boise's done. Obviously, uh, Norvell's only been there for a few years, but they managed to not lose him last season, which they very easily could have. It's actually kind of weird that he didn't get as many looks as you would think. And they're kind of capitalizing on what Fuente built there, um, I also think Memphis is probably a little more realistic just because for so long they were such a, a bad program that them having this kind of success is, is still kind of new and they can appreciate it. Um, and they're not in like this natural like Orlando or Houston area. Like Tennessee is not the most talent rich uh, southern state. So like they've really pieced things together well to where they can really like appreciate the ride they're on and, and, and 
hopefully sustain it for longer. I think they've been a very fun story. USF obviously has Charlie Strong, who is not this like up and coming coach. He's, I mean, honestly, like a bit of an also ran based on what happened at Texas, but you know, wasn't that long ago that he was uh, one of the hottest, not young because he had done Passover for so long, but um, the hotter like new names coming out of Louisville, and that, that kind of helps them. Like he's, you know, he, I think he'll eventually get another big job, but he'll be, you know, I think if they go over. to an Access Bowl this year, I feel like he's going to a new job. Yeah, clearly Texas just wasn't the right opportunity for him, right. um, but he didn't fit there. I thought he was going to do really well there when he got the job. Uh, it didn't happen, but he was great at Louisville. Um, he you know, did a nice job at USF in year one last season, picking up for Willie Taggart. Um, those are just both like situations where versus like the UCF Houston, which had such crazy success under their last coaches, versus Memphis and USF, which have kind of like slowly built these things up over like longer periods of time and. Uh, they could both take a leap forward this year. I think uh, USF has had talent for a while. Taggart was recruiting like crazy when he was there. And Memphis, just like I said, they just have their system. They spread you out. They uh, put up huge numbers um, going back to the Fuente years. So uh, I think that top four is is pretty defined, and I think it's probably a little closer than some people think. I, I think it would be very easy to pencil in UCF, but until we see what this team is post-Frost, like I'm, I'm not comfortable doing that. And I could definitely see like a USF jumping up and winning, you know, nine or ten games, and and this whole conference like eating itself alive. I don't think there's any guarantee that one of these teams um, even comes out without like two losses. To be honest, I would agree. Um, getting to, I mean, I don't want to skip over some of the teams that potentially look like they're ahead of them. Maybe like SMU, Temple, and Navy. But uh, the question on everybody's mind on this show. Um, Dan, can Tulane win six games? They were literally inches away from doing so last year. Uh, Willie Fritz has obviously been getting a lot of talent. He's been making this program better. They seem like they were more competitive for parts of last year, especially in that back half uh, where they were pretty much in a, in a you know one-possession game uh, every single game except for that 30-point thrashing to Memphis. Like, do, do you think the Green Wave are headed back to a bowl this year? Um, based on last season, it, it's tough. You, you could see it going either way. There were... They were so close um, that you could, you know, you could say, "Oh, they could have easily won like six or seven games if things had gone the other way." But uh, when you have those like those games that kind of teeter on the edge, like they can really go either way. Um, so there's no guarantee that they'll take a giant step forward. Um, it doesn't help that their schedule is pretty rough. Uh, I think Wake Forest obviously took a big step forward last year, but could take I a step back this year. They could. Um, they probably won't, know. but they could. I, I don't know if it'll be the same team they were last year, but it's also not, like, the greatest Week 1 opponent. Um, and then you have, like, a pretty solid UAB team in Week 3 uh, where they're on the road. Uh, Tulane, you know, could very well beat them, but it, it's going to be a tough one. And then they have, uh, I think they're at Ohio State in Week 4. Yes. Which is not, uh, I'm not saying they won't win that one. Um, and then even the uh, the games in conference, like, they have Memphis, which is tough. They got, like, the uh, shittiest draw. <laughs> yeah. They have to go to Cincinnati, which is not going to be an easy one, even if Cincinnati is still very much rebuilding. They have to go to USF. They have to go to Houston. Um, I think they avoid UCF, right, which is nice. They do, but they're at Tulsa. Oh, at Tulsa, yeah. That's not easy either. So, um, and you got Navy to I, end the season. Yes. Option bowl. Option, yeah. Did they play Navy last year? Uh, they did. They lost 23-21. to 21. Okay, so that was one of those like crazy close games. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is just a, it's a really tough schedule. I think they could very be one of those teams where they take like a major step forward in terms of the player on the field. And it doesn't necessarily reflect itself in the win and lo- the win loss. Like you need to beat nickel state, um, in order to make a bowl, like they probably need to beat UAB. They probably have to pick up that win at Cincinnati. Um, but even like bringing in SMU, like none of these, even these home games, like none of them are, are slam dunks except for probably ECU and nickel state. Right. To be honest, Jonathan Banks being a senior quarterback, I think, pays a lot of dividends here. Um, obviously, like, even some of the easier teams on the schedule, like, Navy's not easy, but they are one of the easier teams on this schedule. Like, they have Malcolm Perry back. Uh, SMU brings back their quarterback, Ben Hicks. Like, the one thing I will say, like, I could see an upset early is only because, like, Kendall Hinton is um, suspended for the first three games of the season for Wake Forest. Oh, that's a good point. I forgot about that. So uh, give me that upset special on Labor Day weekend. And uh, I'm going Tulane over Wake in that Thursday game. Uh, I just, I kind of like what I see. It doesn't mean Wake won't win six, seven games this year. It just means 
roll damn wave in week one. I'll take them in week two, and I'll take them over UAB as well to get the 3-0 and before they get stomped out at Ohio State. Um, I'll take them over Cincinnati on the road. Uh, I'm taking them over Tulsa. Uh, I'm giving them East Carolina wins, so that's three, and even if they lose those last two. I'm going to feed your uh, Wake Forest upset uh, pick here. <laughs> Are there, there, and I'm going to say – I'm going to say uh, I had to look it up, but Wake Forest played Georgia Tech last year, and do you remember the result? Uh, wait, Wake Forest played who last year? Georgia Tech? Georgia Tech. D- didn't Wake Forest get stomped out in that game? They did get stomped out in that game, 38-24. to 24. Boom. In, in mid-October when Wake Forest was, like, rolling along. So... so- roll wave. Just green wave ascendant. Let's do this. Tulane, 6-6. Six and six. <laughs> yeah, even if they win that weight game, it might be tough, but uh, but I'm all here for it. I mean, so basically the path the path to six and six, Nickel State obviously um, win the home game against SMU at Tulsa, uh, ECU at home, uh, Navy at home, and then you got to steal one of at USF at Houston and then versus Wake Forest at home. So I think that's that you can do that. It's not going to be easy, but there's there's a path. Yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, I think they can go six and six, finish fourth in the in the AAC West. I think that's fine. Fourth, maybe fifth. That'd be a big step forward. I think okay. If they finish fourth, that means that they beat SMU, and that means they're definitely making a bowl. Um, or or they beat Navy, and they're definitely making a bowl. I think I think in, a win over Navy or SMU probably means they're bowling. Yeah, it's a, a very good chance, and that'd be that'd be cool for them. I mean. We've we've kind of like adopted them. I don't even remember what the what the impetus was. I think it was, it was no, it, no, it was the mascot shit. It was was bef- it the mascot? I know we had like the full episode talking about the mascots. Is that the first time? Yes, that was that was when before before Wavy the goddamn wave was uh was their uh, their official logo again. We uh, we started. That's why we had the joke that we actually made this happen <laughs> because like we were could- standing hard for Wavy, and then suddenly he started like showing up randomly. <laughs> That's true. Oh, yeah. You know, it was, we were just looking through old mascots. Yeah. And, like, basically, it, I don't know if it started because of the old Yukon logo. Um, it might have. Probably. But Wavy is definitely in in that, like, that genre of old mascot logos. And then they hired Willie Fritz, who was, you know, we, we both have, I think, a re- relative affinity for Georgia Southern. Yes. And just a lot of things happening. A private school, a very similar school to Syracuse, uh, a lot of like these weird combinations of things have, have led to this point, and it just seems like everything Tulane does is specifically done to make us like Tulane more. I would completely agree. I'm not going to end the episode there. We're almost done, I swear, um, for those who are st- still around, the, uh, the Tulane fans that are, that are here, because um, we, we make promises sometimes, and, and that promise includes talking about Tulane. The logo for this podcast episode will include Tulane, trust me. Um, but let's let's go to the north and south of this conference quick. Dan, um, who's the worst team in this league? Is it Tulsa? Is it Connecticut? Or is it East Carolina? Um, I think it's one of those last two. Um, Probably. UConn. I'm going to give UConn the edge over ECU just because Randy Edsel has like been there before and is more experienced. And Stadi Montgomery is like definitely among the hotter hot seat coaches in the country. Such a dumb hire. Such a dumb fire firing. For yes. Like it wasn't like they, they were forced into hiring him. Yeah, they had Ruffin McNeil who had done an awesome job there for a long time, and they they fired him, which was just so asinine on, on its face when it happened. And then like I didn't even mind the stat like in a vacuum I didn't mind Scotty Montgomery as a hire just because it was like kind of forward thinking and he had done you know Duke has done some nice things going from that that tree I guess made sense if you had to hire someone. But you didn't need to hire someone. Like you had a guy who was doing a great job, and, and you have the fan support, and you have the atmosphere. Like you have all, all, and you have the access to local recruiting. Like the recipe was there for you to go six and six at minimum every single season in this league. Yeah, and this is what we talked about when we like talk about you know, Houston or UCF not messing this up uh, by getting too aggressive. Like ECU got too aggressive, and they weren't nearly as good, but they were like really successful, and they won like eight or nine games a few times. And they just got like they they just way over over you know their their expectations got so pumped up, even with a, a jump up to a much harder league. So that's basically they they kind of wrote the script on like what not to do in that situation, which was hire a, a fire a very successful coach after like 
one or two middling seasons. They weren't even bad seasons. I, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, they were just 500 ish. They were like six and six, seven and five. It's just take a couple lumps as you move up to a new league with a lot better teams. And But like, they got trucked. I didn't even realize. I forgot about these. They got, trucked, really to, one. They got trucked to death by, by the best teams in this conference. Last season? Last, I mean, they started. Yeah, they were getting. They started. They, they, lost by tw- they lost by 20 to JMU to start the year. So um, terrible start. Yes, they they were getting absolutely trounced last year. Um, I remember this because the spreads were massive every single week, and they I don't think they, I, I need to look up how often they covered last year. It was not good. I mean, they lost by thirty to South Florida. They lost by forty-two to UCF. They lost by twenty-five to Houston. Um, they lost. They somehow beat since they beat to thirteen by Memphis. Right, <laughs> just, just like get off the field. It's not good. No. They somehow beat Cincinnati by 28, though. Don't get that at all. I, I remember that because I bet Cincinnati, and uh, obviously it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there is no reality in which you cover there. Okay, not to, not to go down this hole. So, yeah, you know, I have to agree with you. I think UConn's just a little bit more together, not because they are better long-term, just because it would make sense that, like, UConn, making, like, a weird continuity hire goes and, like, Gets their shit together enough so that they're not miserable this year, but like they're still bad, but they probably keep it closer. Um, so going to the other poll before we, we we sign off, I know we mentioned four teams that could potentially win the league. Dan, what is your American Athletic Conference championship game pick um, in terms of the matchup, and then who do you see winning? Uh oh, this is tough. I'm like I want to not pick UCF, right? Um, it just feels too easy, but then like, I just think they have just enough. I think Mackenzie Milton's really good. I think they just returned enough where I think this league will kind of eat itself a bit, but I think they, I just like them enough more than USF where I'm going to take them out of the East and then the West, uh, I'm going to ride with Memphis. I think Memphis, I just like their program. I like what they've built. Um, I trust them a bit more than Houston. I think Houston on paper should improve from seven and five, but I, I don't think it's going to be this massive leap forward as much as I love Ed Oliver, uh, who we somehow didn't talk about to this point. Uh, one of the best oh, players God. in the country. And they're like, we, we thought we were thinking about him the entire time, admittedly, because I know I was, I just like never <laughs> even bothered bringing him up. I just realized like we didn't actually mention his name. Um, yeah. Ed Oliver, he'll probably be a top five pick next year. He's kind of a big deal. I think he he's the number one pick for some reason. Maybe it could be uh, him or Nick Bosa. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to go UCF Memphis, which is kind of chalky, but it's just kind of where I'm feeling this. Um, uh, Houston wouldn't surprise me. USF wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I know Bill C. loves Temple. Um, I'm not quite there on Temple, although I, I like what Temple's done. I think they've done a nice job continuing along and building the program You know, from a place where no one really – I don't remember ever thinking Temple was ever going to be a, a thing, and now they're kind of a thing, which is pretty good for a there would you, small... they're, they're, they're what ECU was. Yeah, and a much and a harder place to win. Right. Um, and now they might get their own stadium eventually. Like the Temple's done a really nice job maximizing what they can be, but I don't buy them as a true division uh, possibility here. So yeah, I'm doing UCF Memphis. Um, but you know, I think a lot can happen in this league. I think it's a very interesting one, top to bottom. Yeah, I mean, I would pick South Florida if they hadn't lost both Quentin Flowers and the running backs. I know Tice and Johnson are both gone. Uh, that presents a problem. I mean, this is a talented team. There's a lot to like on both sides of the ball, but they do lose just a little too much. Um, Strong's a good coach, so he'll still get to coax nine or ten wins out of them here, uh, regardless, um, just because I think they they scheduled well enough. They'll probably beat Illinois, um, just because Illinois is trash. But, you know, with like Houston, I don't really know what I think about Derek King. I think Ed Oliver is enough on the other side of the ball to win them eight games, but... Yeah, it's just going to be difficult to see. They did lose a lot, once again, on defense. They lost a lot on offense, um, including most of their skill players. Again, it depends on how you feel about King, whether or not they can win um, enough games here. Arizona and Texas Tech in the non-conference is not going to help you out either. Um, So I'm going to have to go chalk as well. But give me Memphis um, over UCF, just because I don't necessarily think that UCF is going to be tested enough this season while, you know, Memphis has to face SMU, they have to face Houston, they have to face Missouri. Uh, they will face UCF earlier in the year, so we might get a bit of preview. 
But in general, I think, you know, no matter who wins that, that earlier game, I think Memphis will have enough tests going in that they'll be a little bit better suited to win this conference, and that probably opens the door for FAU or uh, more likely Boise State to, to take that access bowl spot. Yeah, I'll do it the other way. I'll take UCF, even though I spent this whole podcast saying I didn't want to. Um, I trust them just a little bit more. But I think UCF Memphis would be an awesome uh, uh, championship game. I, I think those two teams are delightful to watch. Um, and UCF should still be really fun to watch. This Heupel runs a really, really wide-open offense. But like you said, this I, I think uh, it's just not going to be the same year last year where UCF ran through everyone um, and then had like the closer games but still won at the end. Uh, so, yeah, the, that UCF-FAU game is going to be super interesting. I, I really can't wait for it. And that's in terms of like a non-conference G5, G5 game. Like, I can't remember the last time I was that into one of these matchups. I would have to agree there. Um, so this is going to be fun. Um, I feel like we've gone into triple overtime at this point, but that's what you get when uh, you get the uh, one of the most interesting conferences in the country. I would definitely take watching most of the games in this league over, uh, you know, your kind of bottom half, well, I think bottom third of the, of the Big Ten. Um, oh, easily. Not even close. Most of the non-Syracuse <laughs> bottom third games in the ACC, to be honest, um, just because BC's not all that fun to watch. Uh, neither is UVA. Um, neither is Duke. No offense, Blue Devils. Um, I would take them over half of the Big 12, um, the bottom few teams in the Pac-12, um, and then, yeah, probably the bottom third of the SEC, too, to be honest. Uh, I think at least like one through nine, this conference is really interesting. I don't know what Cincinnati's going to be and UCF or and not UCF, uh, ECU and UConn are pretty dreadful, but like there's just such a range of styles and uh, interesting coaching coaches and interesting uh, talents that it's, it's definitely an attractive watch. And, and I would definitely take it, especially like the, the bottom of the big 10 or um, I, obviously ACC we're a little bit more invested in, but like most of these power conferences, like, they might they might be better and and like that's it's higher quality in terms of like on a player to player basis, but in terms of like having actual interesting matchups, like the AAC is is super is super fun because there's always going to be something weird going on in terms of like that clash of styles. Agreed, agreed. All right, uh, now that we're at the seventy minute mark, I think that about does it for us this week, Dan. Yeah, a little over, but. Uh, think we we got all we could out of this league and we didn't even talk about like every team so that's that's fine too too true we mentioned every team however and that's what counts um, yes all right next week we are in power conference uh well next week we might not have an episode we'll see uh um, holidays and all oh right yeah uh, we'll, we'll make an executive decision so don't bank it is, on it. it is the fourth that's week isn't it true We'll figure it out. We will figure it out. Um, anyway, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, on wherever else you listen to podcasts, and uh, go orange. Go orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.